0: Hi, storytellers. It's season three. Sound Judgment is back. I've missed talking to you and bringing you into the studios of today's most interesting audio storytellers. I began talking with this season's wild and wonderful lineup of guests and realized in one way or another, they're all exploring how much we trust each other. How much we can trust each other, and how we dare to tell stories about the things we usually keep under cover. This season's guests are all pushing the boundaries of what we, as journalists, reveal. They're using all of the narrative tools at our disposal to make gripping stories about often ordinary things, the things that affect all of us, like sex, death, money, class, beauty, attraction, and power. These creators are stretching their own comfort zones, and hours as they figure out how much or how little to share of their innermost thoughts and feelings.
1: I was just like, you know what, let's just have a space where we can just say what we're actually thinking, you know? Even if it is embarrassing, offensive. Like, there are a lot of things that I say in the show where I'd be like, can I really say this, you know? Can I say this publicly?
0: That's my guest today, Jonathan Menhivar, host and senior producer of Classy from Pineapple Street Studios about the sticky, tricky, hidden subject of class in America. This is Sound Judgment, where we investigate just what it takes to become a beloved audio storyteller by pulling apart one episode at a time together. I'm Elaine Appleton-Grant. Storytellers, did you know that Sound Judgment is also a free newsletter? Every two weeks, get storytelling, hosting, and journalism strategies taken straight from the -the on-the-ground experiences of today's best audio makers, no matter the genre. Newsletters feature examples for you to try in your studio, essays on the challenges and the rewards of this craft, and news about fellow audio creatives making the kind of work we all aspire to. Sign up free at Sound Judgment Podcast.com. Welcome, Jonathan Minhevar. I am so delighted that you're here on Sound Judgment.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: How did this show come about, Classy? Because it's very idea-driven. I was imagining that it was a little hard to wrap your arms around at first.
1: It was, yeah. I mean, it came about just because I felt like I had something I needed to say. You know, Uh this is, like, these issues around class are a thing that have kicked around in my head and bothered me pretty much my entire life but it's hard to make a show about it because like so much of these things are internal stories you know and nothing happens on the outside it's not like there is action and plot and all the things you normally need to tell a story you know right but i do think that all of that stuff that is going on inside your head sometimes causes you to act in strange and funny ways. And, and so I just, I figured, like, there's got to be good stories about things that people have done because they are dealing with these strange feelings.
0: In listening to it, it really affects everybody. Like, there's not a person in this country that it doesn't affect in some way. Yeah, And I was like, oh, wow, this is, like, mind-bending almost.
1: Yeah, I certainly didn't realize it myself. But when I pitched the show to my bosses, Jenna Weiss-Berman and, and Max Linsky, um, Max immediately started telling me about his own experience with class. He had grown up in, in a higher class than I did. and But it triggered this thing in him where it was clear that we are all, all the time, looking up and down and comparing ourselves to the people around us. I hate that I, we even have to describe this as up and down. I wish we could just go side to side when we're talking about class. Maybe we, it, it, this shouldn't be the class ladder. It should be like the class train track or something. But anyhow. Yeah, yeah. Um, or a
0: web or something. Some, something, yeah, something, yeah.
1: yeah. But that we are all comparing ourselves to the people around us and thinking about our own class position based on how we measure up against people. And to see that that was happening... In a really powerful way, with Max, somebody who grew up completely differently than me um, and had had an exposure to really high-class people in Manhattan as, mm-hmm. a, as a young person, I was mm-hmm. like, "Wow!" You know, and I think he recognized too. Like that is the power of this show: is that it kind of you start telling a story like this, and then people automatically just start thinking of their own stories.
0: What's been the most memorable response you've gotten from the series so far?
1: I think the most memorable response, there's one review. I know I'm not supposed to read the reviews. But
0: how can you not? How can you not?
1: There's one review. I'm not going to quote it correctly exactly. But they say, like, this isn't a standard interview show. It's a bunch of flawed characters trying to figure out how to live good lives. Ah. And that is not a thing we intended, but I loved that description of it. You know, I'm certainly a flawed character, but that that every one of us in the show, I think, are, are, um, you know, we're running into all sorts of moral questions throughout the show. So, yeah, I thought that was a really apt and perfect description and not one I would have come up with myself.
0: Set up the series for the Sound Judgment listeners briefly.
1: Yeah, so the series is, it, it comes from a very personal perspective of me as somebody who grew up working class. My parents were immigrants from El Salvador and Mexico and had factory jobs my whole life. And now I work in media. I live on the East Coast. I live a very different life than they did. And it's given me all sorts of uncomfortable and weird feelings. That's sort of like the way in to talk to a bunch of different people of different classes about the way class shows up in their life. And it's through all sorts of different things. That's, you know, work. We talk about food and clothing and music. There's an episode about army recruiting, an episode about television. It it was just like a a way to say, like, this stuff is everywhere and let's look at it. Class is so often like talked about as money, but I, I think... In my experience, at least, there's this whole other element that is equally important, which is about the culture that you experience.
0: Whenever I invite a guest on Sound Judgment, I ask them to share an episode of their show that either they loved making or they found very challenging. Sometimes this is one and the same. Mm-hmm. You offered up the very first episode in the series, which is called Are Rich People Bad? And you chose to talk about it today because it does a lot of work to set up the series for the audience, which it does. But the other thing was that you said, it's also one where I feel like we as a staff really found the voice of the show, both in the interviews and in some of the writing I did. Storytellers, I want to give you a taste of this first episode. Jonathan, you share your background in a way that's so specific and evocative that I feel like I am right there with you as a little kid getting up off of two different couches. So... Take a listen to this.
1: I don't remember my parents together. The only evidence that had happened are a couple of photos. And me, I guess. The memories start with Soul Train. If I was at home with my mom on a Saturday morning, Soul Train was on. Watching everyone on screen dance felt like our own personal disco. I loved it. The minute the host came on, my mom would pull me off the couch and force me to dance with her. And now, here's your host, Don Cornelius. Hello
0: and welcome aboard to Right On Time for another ride on the big
1: train. If I was with my dad on a Saturday morning, he'd pull me off the couch when Soul Train came on. And now, here's your host, Don Cornelius. Hello and welcome aboard to Right On Time for another ride on the big train. My dad Carlos lived in a crappy little apartment complex in Whittier, California, just outside of LA. This place had green shag carpeting, pictures of lions and tigers on the walls, and he put them in these homemade wooden frames that he'd singed on the stove. My dad didn't make a lot of money, so all the decor was kind of DIY in that way. Instead of a big screen TV, he had this way he could make his small TV look bigger.
2: I bought a, uh, like it's a big lens, I would put in front of the TV so it would project a bigger picture.
0: You've been writing scripts for a long time. You Uh produced for Terry Gross on Fresh Air and Ira Glass at This American Life. Talk to me about why you start this episode with those two scenes, you know, the short one with your mom and, and then this longer, more you know, really specifically descriptive one with your dad.
1: I think just it feels like real crazy now as I explain it to be like, okay, in order to tell you about this, I got to take you back to the very, very beginning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, talking about like not remembering my parents being together, it was just like a shorthand way of explaining, look, this is the world I come from, you know. is a place where people were working hard, People got married young. Sometimes that didn't work out, you know. And also, I hope, without me saying too much, that that tells you a lot about my life. Just like my parents are divorced before I can even remember. You know, I'm not. I'm not even going to go into details now. But I, I, that is like a, a a pill that you can take that's going to tell you a whole bunch of things. And I, I also too like it was very important. To me and and at least one of our other producers on the show, Kristen Torres, that if we were gonna be talking about poor people, about working class people on this show, that they be presented with life and joy and celebration and laughter. So often when class is talked about in media, it is through a lens of look at these people suffering. Totally understandable why that's true, because There are a lot of people suffering. That's where drama and tension lies. You know, if you're in the news business, that's the stories you're going to tell. But it was really important to me that we set this up to say, like, these are people who have fun, full lives.
0: And I was really struck by the fact that, you know, in the first minute or two of the whole series, that the sort of joy comes through. You know, like yeah. that was fun, yeah. and it sounded like it was fun in both places. And there was a shared culture. I mean, they both love the same show, the yes. same DJ. yeah, and it was clear that you, you know, are presenting both of them with love. And that was really nice because of what you just said, right? A series about class in America could have been like deadly. And it right. seemed to me like you wanted to set it up not just about love and joy from the beginning. And all the messiness of it, but also um, that this was going to be entertaining.
1: For sure. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to be exploring class, but don't worry. It's not a class on class.
0: Last season, I interviewed Julia Barton, the executive editor of Pushkin Industries, about Pushkin's first annual anthology of the best audio storytelling of the year. When I asked her what she thinks the best stories share in common— what it is that actually makes them the best, she said this. You gotta leave a hole for the listener to do some work, you know, to fill in, to want to know things. That concept has stuck in my mind ever since. The idea that if, as a writer, we do the work well, the listener will mull over an idea or a scene or a character. They'll be transported into something from their own lives. Much the way Jonathan said, the minute he pitched classy to his bosses, they got that this series would make you recall your own experiences and feelings about class. That happened to me. And I wanted to understand better how Jonathan sees his role as a producer, why it matters that as storytellers, we summon the courage or the chutzpah to ask deeply personal questions of just about anybody. I think I mentioned that, you know, by halfway through the first episode, I was uncomfortable and I couldn't stop listening. And I kept thinking about this one time when I was like shopping for my prom dress, which Mm -hmm. was polyester, and I bought some costume jewelry. And my parents got really mad and they made me take it back because, you know, it was a little bit more expensive than, I don't know, other stuff that I'd had. And they accused me of trying to keep up with the Joneses. Right. And I never forgot that. I mean, I was like 16 years old and I never forgot like, oh, I was supposed to be ashamed or not try to do that or, or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I wondered like, what do you think the role is in having conversations about uncomfortable things as a producer and a host?
1: I think, you know, I was interviewed by a reporter for the LA Times for this show who pointed out He was like, I kind of take issue with with your characterization that we don't talk about class because we're talking about it all the time. You know, like uh, almost immediately when you meet somebody, it's like, so what do you do? Which is a class question. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to college? Where do you live? And like connected to that is, are you a renter or are you a homeowner? That question is not being asked, but it is being asked.
0: Yes, yes.
1: And so we are dancing around these conversations all the time. And so I think I was just like, let's just have a space where we can just say what we're actually thinking, even if it is embarrassing, offensive. Like there are a lot of things that I say in the show where I had to be like, can I really say this? You know, can I say this publicly?
0: Like what, what was one of those things where you were like?
1: I mean, there is an episode where I talk about how I feel about people who do, uh, service work for me so um, people who deliver food yeah the woman who cleans my house and her crew i mean one it's just like it's mortifying to me to even admit that i have somebody who cleans my house you know like that is even though i live in the suburbs where like i can look out the window and i see crews going in and out of <laughs> houses all day long to admit that that is my reality is hard for me you know i, I come from housekeepers my mom was a housekeeper and my grandmother was a housekeeper and the woman who cleans my house, she's somebody I, I love dearly who's been in our lives for more than a decade. But we, we don't really, really know each other, right. you know? Right, right. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I talk to a lot of people who they want to start a podcast. And then they literally get stymied because it's like they get nervous about mm-hmm. – being themselves on the mic or even, you know, even giving a little bit of themselves away. So how did you get beyond in that moment, like, oh, can I do this? What did you say to yourself?
1: By the time we did that episode, we were several episodes in. And so I, I I turned to my producers and was like, you know, please tell me, do I sound like a total asshole (laughs) in this moment? You know? Yeah. So I, I was leaning on my crew who I really trusted but I do think, like, it appears in this show that I am revealing a lot. You know, it is deeply personal, but there were lines that I didn't cross, you know, lines that I established for myself. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that opening we were talking about, there is a reason why I just say, you know, I don't remember my parents together and I don't go into any of the details of their divorce or what caused it or what came about afterwards. You know, it's just like, nope that's for me Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah so I I kind of just like established some lines for myself and figured out ways to talk about things that in a way that felt comfortable that Mm -hmm, I was okay mm -hmm. with
0: yeah yeah so you emailed me this episode has some of your favorite lines in it
1: you know who doesn't want to be the obnoxious rich person I don't want to be an obnoxious rich person (laughs) Don't worry, I'm not in any danger of that happening. But, you know, there are some things about my life that some people might consider obnoxious. I mean, for one, I make a decent living doing exactly what I'm doing right now. Talking about ideas and putting together stories and sharing them with people like you. What an insane privilege that is. Or, you know, Sometimes when I'm feeling stressed out and I need to center myself, I think about this time when I was in Japan, sitting in an onsen, staring at the mountains. An onsen is what the Japanese, and also obnoxious people who've been to Japan, call hot springs. And maybe the biggest one for me is that my wife and I own a house. My entire life, I was a renter. yeah that was like I, some writing i did late one night where i felt like it is confessional i am revealing things in that episode we are talking all about the ways in which we try and position ourselves and tell our our class story to feel morally better or morally okay and when i wrote the onsen line i was just like that yes I, i'm I'm the mark here, you know? Like, I'm the one who is first going to put my head on the chopping block. When the jokes come, they're going to be at my expense first. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it then, like, set the tone for the show. Like, look, I'm willing to look really stupid, (laughs) you know? And so, like, everybody else here should feel comfortable knowing, you know, that if I'm going to criticize anyone in this, it's going to be me first.
0: I wanted to go back to something unusual Jonathan mentioned. The episode we're pulling apart, episode one, was the first episode they released, but it wasn't the first one they'd made. And what he'd said was that this episode was the one where he and his staff found the collective voice of the show. Describe for me, like, what was going on before, well, before the staff found its voice. And what was that shift?
1: I think we were having a hard time figuring out, one, how to tell narrative stories about this. And the shift really was, though, that interview with Rachel Sherman, the sociologist, where it is, on paper, the most boring thing you could think to do. It is an interview with a sociologist talking about class. And really, like, a bunch of it is defining what do we mean by class? And I just decided, and we decided, me and the producers who were working on it, that, like, we are going to approach this interview with an academic in a totally fun and loose way. And some of that was my producers prepping Rachel for that. And I think, you know, like, you can really tell that, like, Rachel is game. Like, she understands what we are up to. She is coming at me. She is putting me on the spot.
2: Is being a lazy jerk and not having an understanding of what you need to do to earn money the same thing? I guess
1: not. No. So why is it that you think that earning money is, like, the only way to not be a lazy jerk? (laughs) It's so dangerous talking to a sociologist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, I mean, that's the thing. There's so much of the stuff that we take for granted. Well, and also because so many other people are really, really struggling to just, you know, have their basic needs met. They're working really hard. Well, that's true, but, but, sorry, so what about that? (laughs) I'm just saying, like, um, uh, part of it is, I think, just because there are so many people who are, um, they're having to work really hard to earn enough money to just, like, pay the rent and and feed themselves. Right, but
0: what about that? (laughs) Sorry,
1: I'm just, like, not understanding. Um, No, 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 no. That, like, if you are a rich person who just inherited money, like, and you don't understand that, you know, that, like, there there, there are so many other people around you who are doing that. Yes. And if you understand that, why is that better? Um... Just because you should be, like, uh, interested in in other people's situations and empathetic. And if that's the case, does it mean it's okay for you to have the $3 billion? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, we're just going to be super loose in how we do this, and even, like, a little silly. When I ask her the question, are rich people bad, I do this move— where I list a series of fictional and real rich people that are villains or seen as, like, kind of dumb or evil. The story of Robin Hood and, like, why that has its appeal. Um, Thurston Howe III (laughs) from um, (laughs) Gilligan's Island. Gilligan's Island, uh, yeah. All of the Trumps. Every preppy guy in 80s movies, Sam Bankman-Fried, Elizabeth Holmes, Rupert Murdoch, all the characters in Succession, the Koch brothers, Bernie Madoff, Scrooge McDuck, Cruella Deville, Mr. Burns. Lists are funny. <laughs> Lists that are too long. You know, it's like, it's a pretty standard comedy thing where, like, there is a point at which it starts to get funny, it stops being funny, and then it starts to get funny again. And I was just like, let's just try. I have no idea if this is going to work. It's pretty dumb. But it just, I don't know, it just brings an energy to that episode that I feel like really helps us define. Like, okay, we are going to be talking about some serious stuff. But it's going to be real loosey-goosey. And I'm not afraid to sound like an idiot doing it.
0: There are several things that make this series work, and we could debate them because, storytellers, you will hear things that I don't and vice versa. But to me, one is the characters Jonathan's team spent a lot of time and effort finding. Let me play a clip from one of my favorite characters. So this is an army recruit basically a high school kid. Mm-hmm. And his first name is Knowledge, which I kind of love. He lives in Patterson, New Jersey, in the inner city, which is a very dangerous place. And this is in an episode midway through about how the military recruits people in America and what that says about class, much of which is very surprising.
2: I like Mother Nature. I like being out in nature. Like, I honestly feel like If I had a second life, I would be a farmer. Like, I I like animals, I like cows, I like horses, I like all that kind of stuff. You still got time for that life, man. (laughs) Yeah. I I told my family, I said, when I settle down, I'm gonna get me a little farm, get a little horse, a little pony or something, get some chickens, and just eat some raw eggs or something. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know, I just like, I like, Like if I was to go out in the forest and like if I was able to see the sunset, I would literally just sit on the ground and just watch it for hours. Like even in my backyard, I have a little space, like fake grass I could lay down on and put some sheets on and lay down and just look up at the moon, the stars at night. I just like that kind of thing because it helps you escape from reality sometimes and help you see like how beautiful the world can be sometimes.
0: That is so gorgeous.
2: I know.
1: Knowledge is just incredible. Oh, my God. I I love him so much.
0: You didn't have to go there with him. You could have simply stayed with questions that a lot of journalists would ask about, like, why are you joining the military? And, you know, how hard has it been to get in? And what do you want to do after? But you went someplace very different. So what was that conversation like that made him tell you about basically his sort of innermost dreams.
1: Yeah. I knew going in that where he lived was violent Yeah, and that he saw the army as a way out of that neighborhood. And so the question that I asked him was just, what's it like living in Patterson? You know, just tell me about it. I didn't want to front load the violence. I was just like, let's just start from zero. Like, what is this? And immediately what he told me was uh, that there are basically like hours where it is safe to be outside and hours where it is not. And that it essentially he's trapped in his house often. And thematically that's tied in so much to the question we were asking in that episode, which is really about options. Like, Let's be frank about it. There are people, because of their class situation, who have options, who have all the options in the world, and those who do not. And I think ultimately that's what we're saying with that story. You know, like, knowledge is so beautiful in describing the, what he wants in life. But it's also very simple. It's just being outside. He just wants to be outside, you know? He wants freedom to move. But, like, I wish I could tell you, like, I had all these tricks, you know, (laughs) to get him to talk like that. And the truth is, it's just, like, knowledge is a special kid who is smart and, I think, really understood what I was doing there. Mm -hmm. We were Mm -hmm. there pretty quickly in the interview. (sighs) We talked to at least... 30 people searching for the right character for this role in the story. We did a lot of producing to find the right person. And I will say we're very scared at one point that we weren't going to get that person in terms of like deadlines and stuff.
0: So much of it is in the curation. And that's so interesting. You talked to 30 people, which, you know, you were fortunate enough to have the time and space to and the staff to do that.
1: Well, actually, this show, we were doing relatively fast. And when I say we talked to 30 people, Marina and I talked to 30 people at an army recruiting event in one morning. And, you know, it was just clear, like, okay, these six people, call them, because they're the ones who are standing out. Yeah, so it wasn't, that wasn't like a months and months casting process for this person.
0: Do you think of yourself as someone who likes having uncomfortable conversations?
1: Absolutely not. No way. (laughs) (laughs) No way. No way. I mean, yeah, I have no idea why I signed up to have them. I mean, I do like having authentic conversations. You know, I'm not somebody who, like, just wants to sit and chit-chat about the weather. You know, like, I'm willing, like, if we meet at a party— within the first five minutes to be talking about really deep stuff. Um, just because, I don't know, I, I like connecting with people and and talking about real things in a real way. But that being said, if you meet me at a party, please do not start asking me deep, uncomfortable questions right away. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's um, some
0: semantic difference between deep, real questions and uncomfortable conversations.
1: Yeah, but with the show, I mean, I think, you know, I realized i was going to have to have them and it was really you know it took some coaxing on the part of people who were working with me and my bosses and my producers so like i did not want to talk about my cashmere socks (laughs) i have never revealed to anyone that i have cashmere socks (laughs) but, <laughs> Until, was
0: it Vogue picks up on that?
1: <laughs> well, no. I mean, I mentioned it in the first episode because, like, while we were developing the show, one of our producers asked me, like, what's the thing that is your kind of the way that you are indulgent now in your life? And it's it's clothes. I'm super into clothes. And so while we were in a meeting, people asked me to do a fit check to just, like, name everything that I was wearing. and. I revealed that I was wearing cashmere socks, and, and they were just like, oh, my God. I'm like, you have to talk about that on the show.
0: <laughs> and did you say, no, 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 I'm not going to do it?
1: Well, I mean, there was some resistance, you know. I, I don't know. I just I feel weird about it. I feel like it barks me in a certain way. Um, but they are nice.
0: I was struck by Jonathan's delivery. It really is what he sounds like pretty chill, lots of you knows and likes, a certain hesitancy as if he wants to offer you and himself the benefit of the doubt. It's his first time hosting a series after years of producing at Fresh Air and This American Life. You sound very natural on the mic, and yet, it can be really difficult to sound so natural and like you're really talking to somebody when you're doing voiceover and not just in conversation as a reporter with somebody. We get used to that. Mm -hmm. Did you run into any challenges with this?
1: I think it was fine. I mean, I I have many years of experience as a reporter, but it's more the years of experience as a producer, you know, where I have worked with a lot of people in my career who are not radio or podcast people. I've worked with a lot of print reporters. And so I've spent a lot of time translating people to the medium. You know, I, I of course, I was like really, I was trained at This American Life on how to do this. And I certainly do on the mic have, a, have a, you know, I sound like one of the This American Life people. Sorry. You do. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But but I think it's that work of being a producer, of, like, helping people write scripts in a way that isn't, uh, that, that w- there's not too much information, you know, that things are delivered casually, and then directing people. And that training is in my head, you know. So then I just had to do it to myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I also, I had producers who were directing me as well.
0: What do you say, I mean, you said it yourself, you sound like a This American Life Die, yeah, which works for you because it sounds so natural, but there are lots of people out there who are trying to sound like Ira Glass and mm-hmm. that criticism has been flying around for years. Is that a valid criticism of a lot of beginning hosts out there?
1: I mean, I think, you know, the goal is always for people to sound like themselves, you know, and the, this American life way of writing and and talking is just it's just trying to emulate conversational speech yeah i mean i understand why people level that that criticism um but i also think like anything that you're doing you got to start somewhere and and it's often starts by copying people i mean even me who I have worked for more than 20 years in this field and, like, always was, you know, <laughs> trying to sound like a this American life person, and I'm trying to do less of that now. Just even making this show, I've told people <laughs> that there was, like, I described it as a kind of Hulk energy that I felt as I was making it, that, like, in interviews and on the mic when I was tracking. I just started to feel like more of me, you know? I could just kind of like feel it coming into me. But it was just like the, the voice of the show, and, and my literal voice just started to come out of me more. And, you know, and, and I think it really was like being a host for the first time where there were eight episodes <laughs> I had to make back to back to back to back, you know? And so I couldn't help but get more comfortable and get to be more like me.
0: Who would your dream guest be for sound judgment?
1: I mean, I, I have so many people I I want you to talk to. Oh, well, tell um, me them all. <laughs> but I mean, one person I thought of is B.A. Parker, who's one of the co-hosts of Code Switch. She is somebody who came in as a fellow when I was at This American Life and was a completely original voice. B.A., from the moment she was pitching stories at This American Life, just like knew who she was. And that has really carried over in a lot of the work that she's doing.
0: You have worked for two people who people always mention when I say, tell me a host you love, Terry Mm -hmm. Gross and Ira Glass. What do you think that it takes to become a beloved host or at the very least to make a podcast that brings listeners back again and again?
1: I think it's just an ability to be deeply engaged with people. You know, I think it is so hard in an interview to, when you're thinking about what the person is saying and wondering, like, is this good tape or not, and also thinking about your next question to actually be present and listening to what the person is saying and then figuring out how you can open the next door, you know? That's what terry and ira have and why why they get people to say things that are completely surprising and deep and sometimes even revelations to the people themselves
0: do you feel like you did some of that in classy
1: i I would hope so i mean i'm not gonna (laughs) put myself next to them (laughs) but um yeah i mean there's at least one story in the show where somebody said like i've never told this to anyone
0: Jonathan, thank you so much for all your time and such a thoughtful conversation and a wonderful show.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: At the end of every episode, I give you a few of the many takeaways from these conversations. Here are today's. For more, visit our blog on soundjudgmentpodcast.com. One tough topics don't have to sound dreary or earnest. Right from the very beginning, Jonathan sets a scene that evokes joy. It makes you want to dance. In this way, he's letting listeners know that he's talking about class, but it's not a lesson. You're going to be entertained. Two, it may be even more helpful to use humor when you're tackling difficult topics than it is with anything else. When we add some jokes, people listen more we can deal with the hard stuff better. Make sure you point the jokes at yourself, though, not someone else. Jonathan says classy listeners, quote, should feel comfortable knowing that if I'm going to criticize anyone, it's going to be me first. Three, classy is very revealing. We learn a lot about Jonathan's feelings. So when you write your own scripts, think about what's personal versus what's private. Set boundaries. Know what you're willing to share and what you're not. That's all for today. I have such a treat. Coming up for you in our next episode, Anna Sale of Death, Sex, and Money is with me.
1: And I will tell you, Elaine, when I was in my hotel room getting into my sneakers and collecting the sweatbands to take to that street corner, I was like, what am I doing? This is like, number one, is this like safe? Um, number two, like, what if no one comes? Why am I doing this? And I did it, and it was like actually amazing.
0: Also, if you liked my conversation with Jonathan, you'll love my interview with Katie Collinary, the senior podcast editor at New Hampshire Public Radio. We deconstructed a This American Life story. It was so good. That was episode 16, the links in our show notes. You'll also find a link to Classy in the show notes, along with ways to follow Jonathan. If you love Sound Judgment, help us grow our show. Visit soundjudgmentpodcast.com and click on reviews. You can give us a five-star rating that'll go to Apple or Spotify right there in 10 seconds. And leave us a review on Apple. It really makes a difference. And I'm grateful. Sound Judgment is produced by me, Elaine Appleton-Grant. Audrey Nelson is our production assistant. Sound design and editing by Kevin Klein. Our cover art is by Sarah Edgel podcast management by Tina Basir. I'll be back with you soon.